For those of you who were looking for Psalms today, after last week's uh, message, we will get back to Psalms after the Christmas season, all right? So Matthew chapter 2, and um, I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. I read a study that said that if you don't do something with what you hear in the next 48 to 72 hours, uh, that this message will just have been a, nice, a lot of nice ideas. Well, that's pretty humbling for someone like myself, who speaks every week here, that if you, or myself, because this message has really hit me quite hard uh, in thinking about Christmas, that if I don't do something differently in the next 48 to 72 hours, then I will probably forget everything I heard, and I'll just heard a lot of clever, cute ideas. So I had to pray that uh, God would do some wonderful thing, that something would happen in all of our Christmases as a result of what you hear today from this passage. And uh, I'm working on me first. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for that promise in Jeremiah 33.3, a call on me and I will uh, show you great and unsearchable things that you know not. So, Lord, we call on you today that we could somehow, Father, be delivered from the culture in which we live that so seeks to suck your life out of us that we lose you in the midst of the time of year when we should most be focusing and centering on you. So I pray, Lord, you would help us today to hear uh, a new thing from you, and most importantly, that uh, we would be able to actually walk this out differently. Somehow, each one of us in our own unique settings uh, in the next 48 to 72 hours, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 1 of this famous story of Matthew. And I want you to focus on Herod here as we go along. And the question I'm going to ask you is, is why did Jesus put, uh, why did God put Jesus, his son, to be born at the same time of Herod? They were both on the stage, the world stage at the same time. And it's because I believe very much that God was trying to teach us something. And there was a message in here for all of us about Christmas and our lives. And we were meant to read this passage and note a sharp contrast of Herod the king with Jesus the king. So, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Very important. During the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and in the east and come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, and it gives the prophecy. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so I may go and worship him. And then you know the rest of the story. Verse 16, moving down there, he realizes he'd been outwitted by the Magi. He's furious. He gives orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So I want to begin this morning by just talking to you a little bit about Herod and then about Jesus. And I want you to think of the contrast, how they're both very, very different. And then I want to make simply two applications of where I think it's meant for us today. There's, a really, there's so much here that I'm, I'm going to have to finish it next week, but I want to just give you two for this morning to think about uh, for Christmas. Now, Herod was literally called the king of the Jews. That was his job. 
And so when it says in verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah during the time of King Herod. That meant a lot to the people who read that verse uh, in the days of Jesus. He was the king of the Jews for 37 years. Uh, through a variety of means of conspiracy and intrigue, he'd gotten himself in a great position with the Roman Caesar and had set himself up as king of the Jews in Judea. And he was really the greatest king the Mideast had ever known outside of David and Solomon. Uh, he was a half a Jew. He was what's called an Edomite or an Edomian. And uh, he was a, that Edom, Edomites were descendants of, remember Jacob and Esau? Descendants of Esau. So he was half a Jew. And he married into the royal, a royal Jewish family and was deeply in love with his first wife called uh, Marianne uh, or Marini. And, but as, a, as a, a king of the Jews, uh, he had a reputation, a, a big reputation, far and wide, as being very ruthless and cruel. He was jealous, he was suspicious, he was very afraid. In fact, as his life uh, moved on, by the end of his 37-year reign, he was really crazy and, uh, and very afraid of losing his power and position. And he was considered crazy and neurotic, really, throughout his life. So, for example, early on, early on, when he first took power, he killed thousands of Jews that were a threat to him. Uh, when he was threatened by the high priest of the Sanhedrin, he simply drowned him. Uh, he was afraid of his wife's brother, perhaps trying to get him overthrown, so he assassinated him. Uh, he loved his wife so much, he was so obsessed with her, lest anything else happen to her, he killed her. And uh, he was afraid also that maybe she was plotting against him, which was all so far from the truth. Then he had two, they, they had two oldest sons who he was also afraid that maybe they would plot to overthrow him because they would want the throne before he died, so he killed them also. And five days before his death, he killed his third oldest son, knowing that his son wanted the throne. In fact, Augustus Caesar, who was the head of the entire Roman Empire, wrote this about um, Herod. I would rather be Herod's swine or pig than his family, for pigs have a better chance of living. <laughs> now, history records that Herod killed tens of thousands of people during his reign, that he killed tens of thousands of the best men and women in the nation out of fear they'd rise up against them. And uh, some estimates of some scholars say he killed in his 37-year reign a million people. Now, they say scarcely a day passed of his 37 years that he did not execute somebody. Have you ever heard of a book called The Source by James Michener? He's a novelist who writes historical fiction. And his old story gives, kind of gives a picture of what happened, what life was like under Herod's reign if you were living there. A woman was getting her hair curled by slaves. And she made a comment about these massacres of Herod. And a maid who listened in and reported her, and then she was put to torture until she gave the name of her accomplices, of which she then gave 60, and they had nothing to do with anything. There was no plot. And these 60 were then brought in, and they were tortured to the death on the rack until they implicated hundreds of more. So all of these were slain without a trail for a crime that had not even been considered or named. The wealth, their wealth went to the king, for their families were all killed, even to the babies. And that was what life was like. Have you ever read the Gulag by Alexander Solzhenitsyn? And he read about what life was like under Stalin in the 1930s in the former Soviet Union. That's what life was like in Palestine when Jesus was born. And um, where the political climate, there were spies everywhere. There were no public gatherings uh, at that time, that would not be considered seditious or rebellious. But the Romans liked Herod the Great. 
because, and they allowed this madman to reign for 37 years because he kept order. He kept peace on the frontiers of the empire, and he was deeply loyal to Rome. And uh, he supported their interests. In fact, before he died, he realized he was so hated by the Jews. So, uh, so what he did was, he, he, he died a horrible death, by the way, but he wanted to be grieved and mourned at his death. And he knew they weren't going to mourn, they were going to celebrate. So what he did was he had all the leading Jews of the nation rounded up, and, uh, and he put them in jail. And he commanded his soldiers, and he had mercenaries from Africa and different parts of Asia and uh, Germany and Persians. He had this great mercenary army. And he said, listen, the, the moment I die, I want you to kill all these Jews so that at least the country will mourn on the day of my death. But fortunately, they didn't do it when he died, which was good news. But you can imagine when he hears in this story, now with that little backdrop, chapter 2, verse 1, you can imagine when he hears these magi show up at his palace and says, hey, where's the king of the Jews? And you can imagine uh, why he went crazy when in verse 16 and 18, when he goes to Bethlehem and kills every baby under two, that was nothing unusual. That was just the normal run of operations for King Herod. And um, so, but there's a good, well, not good side, but there's another side to Herod. He's a very complex figure in history and, and, and fascinating because as a king, he, in the Mideast, he led Israel on building programs unlike any other, uh, including Solomon. I mean, he built palaces and fortresses. Now, he built these fortresses that were massive that to this day, if you go to Israel on a trip, they will show you a number of Herod's palaces and fortresses and, and temples because he had armies and armies of slaves that cut out stones. And he had a particular way that he had the stones cut uh, for his architecture that were called Herodian. And, um, but he built gigantic fortresses for his own security uh, from his friends, from his, from his enemies, and he had these lavish palaces. Now, Caesar had one palace. Herod had nine. And uh, so for 37 years, he embarked on a massive building program. Now, if some of you know, and I, I think it was I don't know Peter Gluss is here. He gave me a, when he studied the history of New York, he gave me a book on Robert Moses. You ever heard of Robert Moses? He was one of the great builders in New York City history, and he was responsible for the, these highways that cut through neighborhoods. Could you imagine what it would take to build the Cross Bronx and just cut through neighborhoods? Or the Van Wick Expressway and just divide up ethnic neighborhoods? And he was just, he was ruthless. He was, he was a, he's responsible for the, all this incredible system we've got here. Uh, it's quite amazing. But he was, this guy was Robert Moses a hundred times over. And so, for example, he built, he built entire cities. So he built, you heard of the city, Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. And he built it, he named it for Caesar. And it was a magnificent city. It was, it was, it was the he built the largest harbor in that place in all the world. It was actually 24, where is it, 260 acres into the sea. And uh, he built a theater at Caesarea that seated 4,000 people. He had a 25-acre palace that went 24 stories high. He had a huge temple to the gods. He had a lighthouse. He had a stadium for horses and Olympi for the Olympic Games. And it was an amazing feat that he built this, seat, this city, Caesarea, that was so magnificent in honor of Caesar in the middle of Israel, which was a monotheistic, you know, nationalistic people. And he was, he was very shrewd politically. He built Masada. You heard of Masada? At least you saw the movie. All right, way up there in the mountain. He built Masada. It was one of his many, many fortresses. And, and all of his fortresses and swimming pools, all his fortresses and palaces, he loved swimming pools. had lots of swimming pools. And, and uh, he built up Jerusalem. He's the one responsible for what's called the second, the, the temple, Herodian temple, the Wailing Wall. You've seen that, right? Many of you have been there and seen pictures. But uh, that was the foundation of his, uh, his temple. But this temple that he built for the Jews to keep them happy and all that 
was, the sec- was two times bigger than any temple on all the earth. And it took many, many years to build. I mean, one stone, the stones there, weighed 650 tons. Now, if my math is correct, that's 130,000 pounds. Now, these stones were put up 30 to, feet, 30 to 40 feet above the wall. I mean, he somehow got these slaves to get these stones up there. I mean, I'm trying to work on lifting 118 pounds on my bench press, you know, and I'm 130,000 pounds. I mean, the size was astounding of the stones and, and this temple that he built, and it towered over the city. If you've seen pictures of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, that temple area just dominated Jerusalem at the time, and he built it. Um, and uh, in the process, he did something we call Hellenizing Jerusalem. I mean, he, he wanted to take, make the Jews happy, but he was very committed to a lifestyle that we would call Hellenistic or worldly. It went back hundreds of years to the whole Greek culture, and I'll get to that a little bit later. But he was very pro-Roman, very Greek in his lifestyle, and uh, he was an Edomite, which is a half-Jew, and the Jews hated him for all three of those reasons. Now, he built, now, the key thing that read the Christmas story right is he built, of his many, many palaces, he had nine, he built his biggest one only a few miles from Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was a small town of 100 to 300 people. And he built his biggest palace a few miles away. And before he built the palace, the first thing he did was he literally had a mountain moved because he liked his palaces high so he could see everything that was going on. So first he moved the mountain. And that, now that makes sense in that verse when Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Herod would move mountains. But Jesus said, no, prayer will move mountains, says Jesus. So uh, he moves a mountain and he builds this, this massive palace, which uh, uh, went 22 stories up. Now, his palace areas had apartment complexes and everything. I mean, they, they were just gigantic. And, and when the wise men went looking for him in here in chapter 2, they probably went to that, that palace right next to Bethlehem uh, to see him. Now, what he had was this guy had vision. He had wealth, he had power, and he sustained that vision and building for 37 years. But he, he, it made him strong, it made him famous, and of course it made him feel very, very safe during that time. And finally is this. He was considered, at that time, the richest, he was considered the richest man on the earth at that time. And one of the big questions has always been, where did he get the money for all these massive building projects because everything is inlaid with gold and these beautiful mosaic and frescoes and say, where'd this guy get the money for this? It was so phenomenal because, yes, he did prosper the economy and he did pillage and, you know, rape the money off the, the Jewish people, but, but the kind of money he spent was far, far beyond that. And uh, one historian writes that he was the richest man that has ever lived, if you put it in, in dollars of today, that he had created an aphrodisiac, kind of like a Viagra of today. And he sold this all over the world to the Romans and the Greeks. And that he had a secret operation going where if anybody told anybody how he made this, of course, that was the end of them. So they were sworn to secrecy. And he had, he had the, the only rights on this thing, and it was worldwide. And, and that's where one scholar believes that's where all of his wealth came from, this aphrodisiac that he created over his 37-year period. Very interesting, you know. But he had limitless funds here for his building and limitless power. Now, Here's the key thing I want you to see. Here's Herod. Now, God placed Jesus on the world stage at the exact same time as Herod, 
only a few miles away in Bethlehem. So here's Herod, king of the Jews, on one side in his palace with all of his comfort and glory and, and power. And here's Jesus born in Bethlehem, a little town of 100 to 300 people, and in a manger. Now, a manger in those days, it was placed in either a stable or a small cave in the countryside. Now, these were not, you know, we, we dress up, we don't have a manger here today, and, but, uh, you know, we dress up our mangers with a little hay and the animals are nice and clean. But mangers are, again, they were placed in caves primarily for protection, and these were dirty, smelly places. These were not sanitary places. This was the bottom. And here's Jesus, King of the Jews, born basically in a cave, a dirty, small, dark cave. And um, can you imagine, just try to imagine Mary and Joseph and the shepherds walking past that palace of Herod on this mountain, this massive palace that's magnificent. There's the king of the Jews. And walking past that and going to this cave in which is born this little baby that's the Messiah, that's king of the Jews. Can you appreciate the kind of faith it took to believe that this was the king of the Jews, for the shepherds to come and worship him, an act of total rebellion, your life is, is in your hands. I mean, what, what faith? But here, here's the Messiah, weak, small, and vulnerable. And here is Herod, powerful, glorious, comfort in one of the biggest palaces of the world with all that goes with it. So here's power at its top and weakness at its top. And at its most, and here's God, in a sense, drawing for us an extreme picture of Herod, worldly power, and weakness at its extreme over here. And we're both, we look at them both at the same time. And uh, God says, this weakness, this baby is the way of salvation. It's not over here. Now, God says, Herod is not the king. Jesus is the king. And now, who believed it? Not a lot of people in those days believed it that Jesus was the king. Most did not. They believed that Herod was the king. And, uh, but God chose to put the king of the universe not in the palace, but in the cave. Dirty, small, and dark. Now, what are two there's a lot of messages in this. In fact, it's so overwhelming that it's hard to even know what to do with that truth. If I just sat, said, you just think about this for a while, what does, what, what, what does this mean for us that God chose to do it this way? So I'm going to give you two things, and briefly, just go on down. The first one is, I think there's a command application for us to, to see clearly that things are not as they appear to be. That we're to see clearly in life. Mary, the shepherds, the magi, they saw clearly. Things were not as they appeared to be. It appeared that Herod was the real king. He was not the real king. It looked like he was reigning high and ruling. He was not. Now, I think of myself, where would I rather be, the palace or the cave? I can tell you, I choose the palace any day. But that was the choice, the palace or the cave. And God says, things are not as they appear to be. Life is in the cave, not the palace. Don't go running after that. Now, this came out not immediately, but in longevity and long term. If you read Herod's life, uh, by the end of his life, I mean, he died a horrible, horrible death. Uh, he was a miserable man. He was consumed with controlling people, consumed with jealousy. I mean, pathological liar. Uh, he was a lot like Stalin. Uh, you know, but Romans chapter 1 talks about how when we reject God's revelation, he rejects 
any, he resists grace. He resists any revelation from God here. And his life just goes down, 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 down. And when you resist revelation, you start wrecking people around you. And he destroyed a lot of people. Um, but by the end of his life, I mean, he, God has given him over, and he is a mess. But we look at Herod down the road, things don't go too well. And he, you know what he's remembered for? You ask people, what do you remember Herod for? All, people will say to you, he killed a lot of babies. That's what we remember him for. You go, you go to Israel, you'll see a lot of his runes. And archaeologists and tour guides will show you, oh, he had a palace over here, and here's the temple, here's another palace over here, and here's Caesarea, and here's the great theater, here's a stadium, you know, and, and here's where the horses stayed. And they'll show you these incredible feats. I mean, Masada, how did he ever get the swimming pool up here? I mean, they are feats that to this day engineers marvel at how he ever accomplished his building feats. Uh, but what we remember about Herod now is everything was not as they appear to be, and everything is God is in ruins. Jesus, on the other hand, he owned nothing. He built nothing, physical anyway. He died naked and poor, uh, and he was crucified between two thieves. And yet today, things are not as they seem. Jesus has millions and millions and millions of followers and, and fills the universe with his power and reigns on high and is resurrected at the right hand of the Father. And he is the glorious one, but it didn't appear that way at first at all. And it took a great deal of faith to believe that what God said was true and to follow that in the first Christmas. And you know what? It takes as much faith to follow Jesus today and go to the small, dirty place of the cave and not go our world's way, which is the palace. I was at um, Walmart yesterday. I almost got run over by a shopping cart. <laughs> it was a madhouse. I said, where is God in all of this? I don't know. I was just trying to buy a toy. <laughs> but life is a vapor. And you want to step back and look at this verse 1, you know, when, when they go to, during the, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, you stop and say, wow, all the wealth, all the power, all the glory, all the fame, all the education, it all came to nothing. It was meaningless. Life is like a vapor, says James, like a mist. It's here and it's gone. And that's why we're not to be seduced, the Bible says, by what's going on around us, by what the Bible calls the world. And John, the apostle, wrote this in 1 John 2, 15. I, I quote, I wrote it down here. Rather than you turn to it, it says, do not love the world or anything in it. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the come, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. And when you get to eternity, the end of your life, how will you look back at your life, really, in terms of how you invested it? And uh, I want to invite you to take a look around you. We live in the most prosperous nation on earth, and it's a gift. I love America. It's a great country. Uh, but we look at it. We have to look at all the serious temptations that come with living in America because it's, it's a palace here this nation. And uh, we buy things that we don't need for people we don't like with money we don't have, you know. And we're under tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure at Christmas. And um, I want to ask you, really, things are not as they appear to be, and where are you this Christmas, really? Are you in the palace with Herod, or are you in the cave with Jesus? which brings me to my second point, which kind of builds on the first one, which is you've got to choose which king you will serve and follow, Herod or Jesus.
Now, I'm a little convicted by this <clears throat> because been a, my wife has slowed down, and as she said, I've speeded up. But it, it, you'll read the expression in the New Testament called the Herodians all over the place. And Herodians were Jewish people who had, had assimilated to the culture of the pagans. And Her, Herod had a few sons. He put them in charge after he died. But there were Jewish people called Herodians, and these were believers who were kind of like they were Jewish, but they lived like everybody else. They were believers in God, but their lifestyle was Greek. And uh, their, the worldview of the Roman Empire, I guess the worldview when Herod was king was Greek. It was Hellenism. It was when Alexander the Great had come in hundreds of years earlier, he had established the Greek culture in the arts, in, in music, in sports, in education, in religion. And the empire was thoroughly Greek, the Roman Empire. And uh, it was better, big, more, better. It was, a, it was Fortune magazine, Wall Street Journal. It was the worldview is truth is whatever works for you. Yes, the God of Israel, but also, you know, we want ISIS, and we want to make sure we got the other gods and the pantheons, and, you know, we, we got everybody. We want to make sure all our bases are covered. And true is whatever is true for you, and human pleasure is the goal in life. And um, basically, it was all about image and beauty and looking good, and your worth is based on what you do. And, and what's important is your five senses, what you feel, touch, and see, and... and uh, Pleasure. Life is about pleasure. That was the Greek worldview, and that was, uh, that was where Herod was at. It was about comfort and powerful and making money and moving up the ladder. And uh, they were bombarded in that culture with this from every direction. All the schools taught it. And so here are these Jewish believers trying to walk out their faith in the middle of this life under Herod the Great, under a culture that's overwhelming. And you got to imagine, and they didn't have the internet, schools, internets, you know, newspapers, all pushing this worldview. But in the first century, there were believers struggling to serve the true and living God. And uh, they, they said, they're going to do life differently. And, and we got to ask yourself the question, how are we going to do life now at Christmas here? Living in New York City in 2001, how do we do this? Living, in a sense, under Herod the Great, the culture of, 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 of America, which sucks us in to such an extent that, let's face it, for many of us, Christmas time, our spiritual life takes a major nosedive. And it is so difficult to maintain balance, let alone draw closer to God and lift them up. And our lifestyle, really, we're like the Herodians. We're half, we're in, we're bleed, but really we live like everybody else. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we really distinct from the world around us? And I will raise my hand, number one, in recognizing that in the next 48 to 72 hours, I've got to make some serious changes. Now, there's two things they were committed to as early believers in the first century, to be able to choose Jesus as king and not Herod. And first is, they, they were, they, if you were a believer in God, you, you, were, you were absolutely, did I, I didn't write it down, I ran out of space in my overhead. Okay, there was a, number one, there was an absolute commitment to God in every area of life. You understand, when, when a person was a believer in the time of Herod, in Jesus, whether you're sheep, whether you're shepherds or magi or or Mary, or Joseph, and even the early Christians, and the Jewish people living in the times of Herod, there was an absolute, total commitment to God as first priority over everything in life, over job, over career, over parents' expectations, over societal expectations. It was God was first. There was no question about that or else you would get swallowed up. And uh, so there were, the spiritual disciplines were life and death for early believers. And for Jewish believers in the time of Jesus, they couldn't imagine saying, you know what, prayer, they prayed, you know, they prayed five times a day, you know, they couldn't imagine dropping, I, I, you know what, I'm not doing, I got to go shopping. 
They couldn't even imagine such a lifestyle. And I'm going to drop out of God for a while. Prayer, the discipline of the, of the word, the discipline of Sabbath. I mean, these things for believers were not even like, they were never in question for them because they understood that to survive in that kind of a culture, there was such a warfare going on that there was a total commitment that my life is God. But then there was a second thing, which I didn't write down, which was a commitment to radical community. Remember the word insula? Remember the series on James? I kept bringing you the word insula. That was the Greek word for living in community. And they've done excavations. Um, the early the believers in this day, they knew there was no way they could survive under Herod the Great or under this Hellenized Greek world and follow God unless they lived in community. There was no way they ever dreamed they could resist the pressures around them except they were living together. And so they, if you, they have excavations of neighborhoods, of insulas, of where the Jewish people lived and where everybody else lived. And if you look at the architecture of the houses, they're totally different. The Herodians and, you know, the, the rest of the culture had huge houses and baths and, you know, not all the people, but, but the architecture is very different. While the, um, uh, the homes and the houses of the Jews did not have all those things. I mean, they didn't have the 57-inch TV or the big baths or the, or the, comp, or the ornate mosaics and the wealthy gold inlaid um, columns. But they were very different because they understood they, they had to live, first, absolutely committed to God, but second, they had to live in community or else they'll never make it. Do you know what? There is no way I can live out Christmas differently unless there's a body of people, believers, questioning the way the culture is doing Christmas. It's too powerful. My children alone are enough pressure to overwhelm me. And so I think most of us are Herodians in the way that we celebrate Christmas and the way that we live our lives. Who has time for God or really needy people at Christmas? I'm just too busy. And uh, to, to the question is, I, I wanna choose Jesus as my king during Christmas. And I, I know I've gotta, it starts with reestablishing the way I think, that my things are not as they appear to be. Things are not the way it looks out there, but what's really going on, what's really important. But secondly, I want Jesus to be my king at Christmas. And you know what? He's in a cave, which is small, dark, and dirty. And I want to choose the cave and not the palace. So I've got to ask myself some hard questions. I want to ask you the questions. And that is, how does, for example, buying gifts for my children fit into this being Jesus' birthday? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't buy gifts for our children, but I, got to, I have to ask myself the question, how does it fit in to the fact this is Christ's birthday here? And how do I lead them into that understanding? How do I do Christmas Jesus' way? I, I can't tell you. You've got to work that out for yourself. I've got to work it out for myself. But I know one thing. I don't want to do Christmas Herod's way. And we as a community don't want to do it Herod's way. We want to somehow figure out what it means to do it Jesus' way. And I know one thing. That for Jesus' way, if any time of the year, we should be about the least of these, which Jesus talks about. True salvation works it out in showing love to those who are the least I don't think being super busy, being in debt, spending money like crazy is what this is all about. I think Christmas is really about acts of service to the least of these. I'm talking about inviting the elderly over for dinner, the sick, 
the prisoner, the dying. Remember, Jesus said the great ones in the kingdom are the unimpressive ones, those in the shadows, the insignificant, the children, the poor, not the flamboyant, the battered, the handicapped, the prisoners, the lonely, the socially unstrategic, that this is what Christmas is about. I'm going to, I'm raising my hand. I've had a busy couple of weeks. And uh, I've missed it so far. I have. I'm aware that I have missed it. And so it was kind of hard to get up here and preach when I'm having a Herodian Christmas. But I want Jesus as my king this Christmas. So I am making some changes. I made a couple last night. And um, it's, it's true what God said. It is better, it is truly greater to give than it is to receive, to give joy to people. And um, I want to invite you this morning to pause for a moment and ask yourself, which king am I going to serve and follow this Christmas, Herod or Jesus? And for those of us who have children, if you don't have children, we've got to lead our children to what Christmas is all about because the culture is overwhelming them. And we've got to stop and pause and get a grip. And I'm the first one repenting on this one. All right. Amen. I want the worship team come forward. I'll close with one final thought. You know, I asked myself, what would it take for Herod to become a Christian? I thought of the four spiritual laws. I don't think it would have worked. The only way Herod could have become a Christian was by the Holy Spirit. The only way that I could become a Christian or you could become a Christian is by the Holy Spirit. The only way you're going to change the way you do Christmas is by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's a decision, but I need power from heaven. And I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on us. You know, one of the great themes of Christmas, it's really worth a whole sermon, maybe I'll give it someday, and just the way Jesus was birthed in Mary's womb, it was a miracle by the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a picture of what every conversion is like. Every time a person becomes a Christian, it's a miracle of a virgin birth. In a sinner, God births Jesus. It's a miracle. And something now takes life inside of a person that was not there before. That's the only way Herod could become a Christian. That's how I became a Christian. God did a miracle in me. And the, every, that's why every Christmas, we marvel at new births. It's a miracle that Jesus is born in people. And this morning, we want to ask the life of the Holy Spirit to be birthed in us in this room, anyone who doesn't have that. But I'll tell you, I want the life of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, moving through me so I can serve and follow Jesus as my king this Christmas. Because the pressure of the world is so tremendous to push him out. And we need time to be quiet and listen to him on what does it mean to follow Jesus in the cave Christmas for me, my friends, and my family. And to choose the cave and resist the comfort, glory, wealth, and seduction of the palace. So I want to invite you all to stand with me. Let's take a moment and just pause.